Hi, Dave Emery here. This is For the Record Program number 1297, The End and the Beginning, Part 4. This is being recorded on May 5th of the year 2023. A happy Cinco de Mayo. Um, you know, it, it's funny, that, that uh, holiday celebrates the Battle of Puebla in which uh, Mexi- the Mexican forces defeated the armies of the French Emperor Maximilian. But Maximilian's name was Maximilian, I forgot was it Maximilian von Habsburg or Maximilian de Habsburg. He was a member of the ruling family of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and they... The ruling families of Europe are heavily married into one another. Uh, the Habsburgs were associated with U.S. intelligence from the immediate post-World War I period going up to the present and were heavily involved with the Third Reich. So an interesting bit of historical uh, trivia there. Anyway, uh, going to uh, the present... Uh, before I get into the subject material of the program, a couple of points. Uh, Terrafractal is our brilliant contributing editor, and he is posting comments on a regular basis to the SpitfireList.com website. I emphatically recommend checking that website on a regular basis. He has two more comments uh, that he just put up today, today being May 5th, and they are just terrifying. They also dovetail with the altogether, uh, not just pessimistic, but apocalyptic foundation of this series on doing. Uh, turns out SARS-CoV-2 infection uh, just messes up your body in so many different ways, and uh, uh, that apparently includes mild infections as well. But anyway, just the news couldn't be worse. But uh, please do uh, take advantage of Purifractal's brilliant work and visit the comments on the website. The uh, RSS feed link is broken. I'm going to figure out how to repair that. Now, anyway... Uh, also, in our media landscape, increasingly podcasts are the best way for many to listen to For the Record, and sister station WFMU is podcasting For the Record. So if that is the best way for you to consume the program, there is a link at spitfirelist.com to uh, get yourself, uh, avail yourself of the WFMU podcast of For the Record. And be aware that there is a 32 gigabyte flash drive with all of my life's work on it that is available for a nominal fee. I get no monies whatsoever from that. That flash drive is going to be updated very present, very shortly. Now, uh, the program and series I'm doing is probably not going to work. I, I was, uh, as I mentioned, I was speaking with a long-time trusted associate, and he opined, and I'm inclined to agree with him, that when you tell people that they're doomed, and I think we are, uh, it tends to depress them and turn them off. And I certainly 
understand that. And I, I was trying to emphatically get my point across to him. And he has kids, and I said, you know, but your kids are doomed. And he said that sounded manipulative. Again, I can appreciate that as well. But it places me in a dilemma. A, I think that's what's going, that is what is happening. Uh, I think we are <laughs> at the end of our rope as a civilization. And, uh, well, I do think the, the, the other part of the title, the beginning, there is, uh, call it what you will, a metaphysical realm, a spiritual realm. There are more dimensions than just the four we experience with our senses, height, width, depth, and time. How many more? I don't know. That's a subject of some uh, debate. But there is some very good scientific evidence to the effect that there is more than just a bunch of dumb molecules bumping into one another. Call it what you will. I'm going to attempt at the end of this series to uh, convey some of my thoughts in that regard. It probably won't work. It may look pathetic, but I've got to do what I think is right. And you know, going back to what the associate told me, I understand exactly what he was saying. On the other hand, what am I supposed to do? Lie to you? Oh, it's going to be okay. You know, I know things look kind of dark right now, but just think happy thoughts. And if we all organize and, and uh, uh, do this, I mean, not... <laughs> no. So uh, that trusted associate's comments left me in uh, something of a dilemma. But I am doing this series in an attempt to address that. And I'm going to plunge right back in. We have been talking, we began this series with analysis of Carl Schwab. And uh, Carl Schwab is the head of the World Economic Forum at Davos. He also is from a family that was associated with Salzburg Escher Weiss, a Swiss firm that also did tremendous work for Nazi Germany, tremendous meaning a lot of work for Nazi Germany, including on their uh, nuclear program. They used slave labor. And then Klaus Schwab followed his father uh, into uh, business with uh, Escher Weiss, now Salzburg Escher Weiss. And they were involved with the apartheid-era South African nuclear effort. And uh, Klaus Schwab has, as one of his mentors, and as one of the top influences on him, Henry Kissinger. So, uh, repeating a little bit of the article with which we began this series, it is from the Unlimited Hangout blog, Schwab Family Values by Johnny Vedmore, from February 20th of 2021. In this Unlimited Hangout investigation, the past that Klaus Schwab has worked to hide is explored in detail, revealing the involvement of the Schwab family not only in the Nazi quest for an atomic bomb, but apartheid South Africa's illegal nuclear program. Especially revealing is the history of Klaus's father, Jürgen Schwab, who led the Nazi-supported German branch of a Swiss engineering firm into the war as a prominent military contractor. That company, Escher Weiss, uh, it's capital E-S-C-H-E-R hyphen capital W-Y-S-S, uh, 
would use slave labor to produce machinery critical for the Nazi war effort, as well as the Nazis' effort to produce heavy water for its nuclear program. Years later at the same company, a young Klaus Schwab served on the board of directors whom the decision was made when the decision was made to furnish the racist apartheid regime of South Africa with the necessary equipment to further its quest to become a nuclear power, skipping down. While at Harvard, Schwab was taught by Henry Kissinger, who he would later say was among the top three to four figures who had most influenced his thinking over the course of his entire life. About Henry Kissinger, uh, from the book America's Nazi Secret, published uh, by Prime Day, in soft cover, uh, that is the unedited version of uh, John Loftus' 1982 book, The Bavara Secret. Kissinger, about Henry Kissinger, Kissinger was recruited as a professional spy for Alan Bellis shortly after the end of the war in Europe. Although there is no evidence that he personally recruited Nazis, Kissinger ran the intelligence file room where records of Nazis of Nazi recruitment were kept one more time. Although there is no evidence that he personally recruited Nazis, Kissinger ran the intelligence file room where records of Nazi recruitment were kept. He then transferred to Harvard, where he specialized in recruiting foreign students for espionage. Later, he worked for Alan Bellis during the glory days of the Office of Policy Coordination. He was hired as a consultant for a private group known as Operations Research Office, which planned to use former Nazis as agents behind Russian lines in the event of World War III. Mention of Kissinger's classified work was censored from the original manuscript of this book. And I guess Kissinger actually rattled legal sabers in John Loftus's direction. Uh, John Loftus, a former military officer uh, and a genuine American hero, in my opinion, worked for the Office of Special Investigations, investigating Nazis in the country. He wrote, uh, again, the Bavara Secret in 1982, uh, The Secret War Against the Jews, co-authored with Mark Ahrens, and Unholy Trinity, also co-authored with Mark Ahrens, and now uh, at the America's Nazi Secret, published in softcover by Prime Day. So Henry Kissinger was deeply involved with the uh, OSS-CIA-OPC Nazi effort and the Galen organization. Not too much of a surprise. Now, again, this uh, series may not work too well, but I'm trying to, well, uh, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and whoever rips, so to speak. We're going to resume with an article with which we left off in 1296, The Things They Left Behind by Elizabeth B. Samet. This is a review of The Long Reckoning, a story of war, peace, and redemption in Vietnam by George Black. This is from the New York Times Book Review of April 9th of 2023. Black focuses his attention largely on Vietnam's Quang Tri and Thua Pien provinces along the Laotian border. Quote, all the worst legacies of the war were concentrated here, he writes, an area smaller than the state of Connecticut. 
The nation also unleashed more bombs on Kwangtree alone than had been dropped on Germany during World War II. A massive defoliation campaign to reduce cover for Vietnamese ambushes, known as Operation Ranch Hand, began in 1961. Soon, the U.S. government began to authorize crop crop destruction as well. Black describes Ranch Hand as, quote, without precedent in history, using all the tools of science, technology, and air power to lay waste to a country's natural environment. By contrast, when the destruction of Japan's rice crop had been proposed in 1944, Admiral William Leahy, L-E-A-H-Y, President Franklin D. Roosevelt's chief of staff, quote, vetoed the idea, saying it would violate every Christian ethic I ever heard of in I ever heard of in all known laws of war. Black offers various measures of the refreshing, excuse me, Black offers various measures of the resulting devastation of the Vietnam Laos borderlands. Perhaps none is more suggestive of the magnitude than this statistic. Between 1964 and 1973, U.S. aircraft flew 580,344 sorties over Laos, which averaged out to one every eight minutes, 24 hours a day for nine years. And of course, Henry Kissinger was deeply involved in the secret bombing of Cambodia. And uh, we've already touched on Mr. Kissinger. And he was a mentor to Klaus Schwab. And both have a common uh, intersection with Nazi heritage. Now, I mentioned the use of Agent Orange and Operation Ranch Hand, uh, and talking about the Vietnam War, of course, one of the, arguably the pivotal event in uh, our involvement in Vietnam was the assassination of JFK. President Kennedy had ordered a withdrawal from Vietnam, and that was then canceled the weekend on which Ruby assassinated Oswald, and in we went. Even while LBJ was uh, portraying himself as a peace candidate. Already the plans were laid for moving into Vietnam. Now, how about Agent Orange and the other uh, color-coded herbicides that we used in Operation Ranch Hand? Well, those came to us from a similar area. Reading now from the book Coup in Ballas, The Decisive Investigation into Who Killed JFK by H.P. Alberelli Jr., forward by Dick Russell, Skyhorse Publishing, and copyright 2021 by H.P. Alberelli and Linda O'Hara, we read about uh, Friedrich Fritz Hoffman. He was the guy who developed Agent Orange. Under the umbrella of the CIA's Security Research Service, CI organization Morweed was among the front organizations, capital M-O-R-W-E-D-E, was among the front organizations protecting Nazi chemists transported to the U.S., including Dr. Friedrich Fritz Hoffman, a major beneficiary of the largesse of the paperclip pipeline, by the way, Project Paperclip, 
was the importation of Nazi scientists, many of them uh, SS war criminals, to work in the U.S. defense industry. Continuing, in the late 1950s, Hoffman's work for the CIA and for Dietrich included development of lethal chemical agents to be used as weapons in Vietnam, proof that the disarmable was just over the horizon when John Kennedy took office. One of these weapons, the horrific and now infamous Agent Orange, was authorized for use in Vietnam in November of 1961, implemented in 62 under Operation Ranch Hand, with the stated objective of, quote, improving road and waterway visibility and clear camp perimeters, unquote, so that, again, quoting, greater number greater numbers of enemy troops could be killed. A year earlier, two of the nation's leading corporations, Schlumber J. Limited of Houston, Texas, and Dow Chemical of Midland, Michigan, combined forces to form a shared division named Dow Schlumber J, that's capital S-C-H-L-U-N-B-E-R-G-E-R, to provide expertise and pumping services for the U.S. oil industry, which would, of course, fly during the impending all-out war in Southeast Asia. By 1962, Dow's parent, Dow Chemical, was mass-producing Agent Orange under specifications perfected by Hoffman and his team at Fort Dietrich. More about Friedrich Hoffman and Project Paperclip, this from the very important text, Operation Paperclip, by Annie Jacobson, published in hardcover by Lovell and Brown. Copyright 2014 of Friedrich Fritz Hoffman. Fritz Hoffman was one of the earliest known U.S. Chemical Corps scientists to research the toxic effects of dioxin, possibly in the mid-1950s, but for certain in 1959, as indicated in what has become known as the Hoffman Trip Report. This document is used in almost every legal record pertaining to litigation by U.S. military veterans against the U.S. government and chemical manufacturers for its usage of herbicides and defoliants in the Vietnam War. And, of course, Agent Orange uh, not only uh, killed plants, but it has it was extremely toxic and has done terrible things to human beings, not only in Southeast Asia, but also uh, GIs coming back to the U.S. from Vietnam have suffered uh, grievously because of Agent Orange. And Agent Orange and things that would appear to be uh, near and dear and unrelated completely to Agent Orange uh, are discussed in a book that I have covered at great length in the past, it is one of those essential books with a capital E and a capital B. That book is called Surveillance Valley. It is by Yasha Levine and published in hardcover by Public Affairs Books, copyright 2018 by Yasha Levine. In the 1960s, America was a global power overseeing an increasingly volatile world conflicts and regional insurgencies against U.S.-allied governments from South America to Southeast Asia and the Middle East. These were not traditional wars that involved big armies, but guerrilla campaigns and local rebellions, 
frequently fought in regions where Americans have little previous experience. Who were these people? Why were they rebelling? What could be done to stop them? In military circles, it was believed that these questions were of vital importance to America's pacification efforts, and some argued that the only effective way to answer them was to develop and leverage computer-aided information technology. The Internet, some of you may have heard of this, the Internet came out of this effort, an attempt to build computer systems that could collect and share intelligence, watch the world in real time, and study and analyze people and political movements with the ultimate goal of predicting and preventing social upheaval. And still more about this from Surveillance Valley by Arthur Levine. Again, one of those essential books as important as any book I've ever read, and it's one of those books uh, without which, without having read, you will not fully understand the world in which you live. Continuing, Red Ham got going in 1962 and lasted until the war ended more than a decade later. In that time, American C-123 transport planes doused an area equal in size to half of South Vietnam with 20 million gallons of toxic chemical defoliants. Agent Orange was fortified with other colors of the rainbow, Agent White, Agent Pink, Agent Purple, Agent Blue. The chemicals produced by American companies like Dow and Monsanto turned whole swaths of lush jungle into barren moonscapes, causing death and horrible suffering for hundreds of thousands. Operation Ranch Hand was merciless and in clear violation of the Geneva Conventions. It remains one of the most shameful episodes of the Vietnam War. Yet the defoliation project is notable for more than just its unimaginable cruelty. The government body at its lead was a Department of Defense outfit called the Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA. Born in 1958 as a cash program to protect the United States from a Soviet nuclear threat from space, it launched several groundbreaking initiatives passed with developing advanced weapons and military technologies. Among them were Project Agile and Command and Control Research, two overlapping ARPA initiatives that created the Internet. One more time. The government body at its lead was a Department of Defense outfit called the Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, Born in 1958 as a cash program to protect the U.S. from a Soviet nuclear threat from space, it launched several groundbreaking initiatives tasked with developing advanced weapons and military technologies. Among them were Project Agile and Command and Control Research, two overlapping ARPA initiatives that created the Internet. The point being that the same counterinsurgency projects that created Agent Orange and again developed by Friedrich Fitz Hoffman, one of the Nazi paperclip uh, imports, also led to the Internet. 
Now, Ian, for the record, 1077 about Cambridge Analytica, I made a, an important point. Uh, the meeting of the Industry Club of Dusseldorf in the early 1930s uh, featured a speech by Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler, by the way, was not a lone nut. He was an undercover German Army intelligence officer. He reported to a General von Lassau for in the political department of the Reichswehr, the German Army, between the two world wars. When he gave a speech to the Industry Club of Dusseldorf, whose members were skeptical of Hitler, he won them over by pointing out his uh, his ideology or ideological tenet that democracy led automatically to communism. It was uh, basically sort of an iteration of social Darwinism. But in a nutshell, Hitler addressed the Industry Club of Dusseldorf and said that the people there uh, had their superior positions in society because they were, in fact, superior. And if you allowed people political democracy, they would use that political democracy to redistribute the wealth in a society to people who were less worthy, less uh, excellent than them. And this, uh, said Hitler, would be counter-evolutionary, not counter-revolutionary, but counter-evolutionary. It was an ultimate manifestation of social Darwinism. Uh, what Hitler was talking about is basically uh, the equating of political democracy with communism. Therefore, if you allow people to commit political democracy, that will lead to communism. And that was an ethic that was shared by some very, very profound people. That's why the paperclip scientists were imported at the end of World War II. That's why the Galen people with whom uh, Henry Kissinger worked were imported at the end of World War II. And that is why so many powerful industrialists and financiers, people like Alan Bowes and many others, were sympathetic to and avidly supportive of Nazism and fascism in general. I'm going to read a portion of the introduction to anti-fascist books. This is in the Books for Download section of the SpitfireList.com website. And it talks about, quite correctly, fascism as the real beginning of what we now know as globalization. In the decades since the end of the Second World War, much has been written about that war and fascism, the driving force behind the aggression that precipitated the conflict. Unfortunately, much of what has been said and written has failed to identify and analyze the causes nature, and methodology of fascism, German National Socialism, or Nazism in particular. A deeper, more accurate analysis was presented in literature published before, during, and immediately after World War II. Spitfirelist.com 
is pleased to present a number of books published during that period. Almost all more than 50 years old, these works embody a more complete, profound analysis of the historical forces that dominated the events of that time and, more importantly, our own. Whereas much contemporary literature on the subject presents fascism and Nazism in particular as an aberration, the phenomenon was an outgrowth of major political forces and dynamics that dominate and control contemporary events and processes. Some of the books presented here illustrate the extent to which fascism, Nazism in particular, was an outgrowth of globalization and the construction of international monopolies or cartels. A key to understanding this phenomenon is analysis of the Webb-Pomerine Act legislated near the end of the First World War. A loophole in the antitrust legislation of 1914, it effectively legalized the formation of cartels, international monopolies, for firms that were barred from domestic monopolistic practices. Decline what they viewed as excessive and restrictive, quote, regulation, unquote, here in the U.S., U.S.-based transnational corporations invested their profits from the industrial boom of the 1920s abroad, primarily in Japan and Germany. This process might well be viewed as the real beginning of what is now known as globalization. And for the record, programs 99, 361, 426, 511, and 532 present an overview of the reinvestment of the wealth generated by the American industrial boom of the 1920s in German and Japanese strategic heavy industry. It was this capital that drove the engines of conquest that subdued both Europe and Asia during the conflict. We also note that the failure of American industrial and financial firms to invest their capital in U.S. infrastructure contributed significantly to the onset of the Great Depression, depriving American industry of the monies needed to sustain the engines of industry and commerce. So again, if it seems a little bit far out or impossible or a reach for me to make a jump from Hitler's speech to the Industry Club of Dusseldorf in the early 1930s, something that won over the uh, German industrial and financial elite to the Nazi cause, and his equating a political democracy with communism and pointing out how it would allow inferior creatures to redistribute wealth for their own benefit, and talking about that, and uh, the development of the Internet, well, that might seem sort of far out or a bit of a reach. I wish I could say, sadly, that it was. If you are going to prevent insurgency, then you want to know what people were thinking, and the Internet is a perfect way of doing that. When Edward Snowden uh, first broke in 2013, and I've spoken a lot about uh, Eddie the Friendly Spook, uh, I noted that what Snowden was basically talking about had been known for some time. Basically, uh, all emails, all phone calls, all faxes, uh, everything 
that you do on the internet is known to the NSA and to the other members of what are known as the Five Eyes. That is Great Britain, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. It is a global electronic espionage organization or surveillance uh, organization that would be that would be better termed that has existed from the end of World War II. Everything you do online is known by the powers that be. Uh, I haven't got time here to go into Eddie the Friendly Spook Snowden, but what, what he supposedly was breaking for the first time has been known for a long time. And again, the Internet has the same genesis as Agent Orange. The common denominator, counterinsurgency. And if you go to Adolf Hitler, what he was talking about was equating democracy with communism. And if you're going to do that, you got to know what people are thinking. And the internet is a perfect way of doing that. Uh, if people's thoughts are uh, accessed, then you can be sure who is uh, thinking what is improper. Now, in that regard, uh, I just... Again, I, I am absolutely scared bleepless. Uh, I spoke in the, our last program, as I have in uh, two shows, called uh, Summoning the Demon Parts 1 and 2, about my conviction that AIs were going to exterminate us. The late Stephen Hawking, uh, deemed a genius by all in 2014, made exactly that warning, and many others have done the same thing. There was a, uh, a native of the UK named Hinton who is referred to as the godfather of AI and he resigned his position with Google because he is afraid of the same thing. And there are many possibilities uh, for AI to mess up our world, none of them more <laughs> terrifying than this. This from the business section of the New York Times, the front page of the Western print edition of the New York Times for Tuesday, May 2nd of 2023. This is an article by Oliver Wang, W-H-A-N-G, and it's headlined, AI to read your mind is up next. Now just understand that the Internet was born from the same overlapping series of DARPA projects as Agent Orange. And as we've seen, Friedrich Fritz Hoffmann, one of the Nazi paperclip uh, imports, was the fellow who developed that, and it has done terrible things to the people of Southeast Asia and also to American GIs who have returned from the Vietnam War. They they are uh, rapidly dying off, many of them because of Agent Orange poisoning. But just imagine the total surveillance that is possible with uh, the Internet, again, born of the same overlapping DARPA projects as uh, Agent Orange, and factor in this. Think of the words whirling around in your head, that tasteless joke you wisely kept to yourself at dinner your unvoiced impression of your best friend's new partner. Now, imagine that someone could listen in. On Monday, scientists from the University of Texas, Austin, made another step in that direction. 
In a study published in the journal Nature Neuroscience, the researchers described an AI that could translate the private thoughts of human subjects by analyzing fMRI scans, which measure the flow of blood to different regions of the brain. More about this. Quote, this isn't just a language stimulus, unquote, said Alexander Huth, H-U-T-H, a neuroscientist at the university who helped lead the research. Quote, we're getting at meaning, something about the idea of what's happening, and the fact that that's possible is very exciting. Uh, well, he may call it exciting. I would call it terrifying. Uh, just imagine, if you will, uh, the combining of technology like that, surveillance technology run by AIs, which can monitor your thoughts from the blood flow in your brain, then combining that with, for example, surveillance systems, visual surveillance systems, and robotic weapon systems. The uh, cutting edge of military technology now is to have AI-driven weapon systems. A very bad idea, in my opinion. And uh, in the future, uh, the powers that be will be able to determine whether your thoughts are acceptable. And if not, you might be run into prison or just summarily eliminated by a drone bot with AI capabilities. Again, it is... Just, uh, this this guy, Alexander Huth, I may be mispronouncing the name, says, that's very exciting. Well, that may be one word for it. I would call it absolutely terrifying. Uh, he says that right now, the language decoding method had limitations. For example, it's very bulky. Well, uh, miniaturization is a going thing with uh, the... Internet and, uh, and electronic technology in general. Uh, I think this bodes very poorly. In the very first album called Freak Out, the, the Mothers of Invention, the late Frank Zappa's band, had a song called Who Are the Brain Police? The Imperial Japanese Secret Service, uh, or the Imperial Japanese Fascist Government had a secret police who were called the Thought Police. They were in charge with uh, policing people who had the wrong thoughts. Well, this technology bodes the lifting of the brain police or the thought police to an entirely different level. And we should not lose sight of the fact that, and again, as the books in the books for download section of the SpitfireList.com website, by the way, available on the aforementioned flash drive. As they point out, fascism and Nazism were not something alien to the U.S. That's why the paperclip people were brought in, such as Fritz Hoffman. That's why uh, the uh, Galen spy people were brought in, including legions of SS men. They worked with people like Henry Kissinger, one of the mentors to uh, Klaus Schwab. And now we are going to have AIs being developed that can read your mind. Uh, it, it is just... Um, I 
I think it was the late Gordon Lightfoot, the folk singer who passed away uh, the about a week or so ago. And he had a song, I may be misidentifying him, perhaps I'm thinking of uh, the Ian and Ian and Silly, but I'm pretty sure it was Gordon Lightfoot. And he said, uh, one of the lyrics of his song said, If you could read my mind, love. Well, <laughs> guess what, folks? Uh, that is what AIs are going to be doing. They, they will be able to read the blood flow in your brain and determine what you are thinking. And uh, that is a very terrifying thing indeed. One of the points that I think needs to be very uh, strongly emphasized, and that is the fact that not only the Internet, which now may have AIs that can read your thoughts, which is just a wonderful idea. Uh, the Internet, Agent Orange, uh, and uh, other uh, things that were uh, basically deemed to be counterinsurgency useful, that also that same nexus appears to have spawned the SARS-CoV-2. I've done some massive series on that. Uh, the Oswald Institute of Virology series uh, for the records 1170, uh, 1183 through 1193 for the record 1215. Then I came back to it for the record 1292 and 1293. Also the the overlapping Pandemics Incorporated series for the record program 1251 to 12... uh, about 1258, and then uh, for the record program 1277 and 1278. Speaking of uh, ARPA, DARPA, the Internet, Agent Orange, uh, let's quickly review something which is fundamental for understanding contemporary biotech. This, again, I've read this many, many times, but it is really important. The whole lab leak debate about SARS-CoV-2 is technologically obsolete. Why? Glad you asked. Uh, from the Guardian of June 19th of 2018, an article by Ian Sample, S-A-N-P-L-E, Synthetic Biology raises risk of new bioweapons, U.S. report warns. Skipping down. Advances in the area mean that scientists now have the capability to recreate dangerous viruses from scratch, make harmful bacteria more deadly, and modify common microbes so that they turn out lethal toxins once they enter the body. In the report, the scientists describe how synthetic biology, which gives researchers precision tools to manipulate living organisms, quote, enhances and expands, unquote, opportunities to create bioweapons. Today, the genetic code of almost any mammalian virus can be found online and synthesized. The technology to do this is available now, said Michael Imperiali. It requires some expertise but it's something that's relatively easy to do, and that is why it pops the list again. Today, the genetic code of almost any mammalian virus can be found online and synthesized. Uh, Couple that 
We are reviewing an item from Formal Record 1277 and 1278 from the New York Times of September 12th of 2022. Biden picks biotech executive to lead new biomedical research agency by Cheryl Gay Stolberg, S-T-O-L-B-E-R-G. I don't know how this woman's last name is pronounced. It's spelled capital W-E-G-R-Z-Y-N. I'll call her Dr. W. Dr. Renee W. is President Biden's choice to lead the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health. Does that remind you of something? Which is aimed at driving biomedical innovation. President Biden sketching out a vision for, quote, bold approaches, unquote, to fighting cancer and other diseases announced on Monday that he had selected Dr. Renee W., a Boston biotech executive with government experience, <laughs> boy, does she have government experience, as the director of a new federal agency aimed at pursuing risky, risky, far-reaching ideas that will drive biomedical innovation. These are risky ideas, okay? Boy, are they risky. Mr. Biden made the announcement at the John F. Kennedy Presidential Library and Museum in Boston on the 60th anniversary of the former president's moonshot speech that ushered in an era of space travel. He used the occasion to reiterate his call to, quote, end cancer as we know it, unquote, the tagline for his Cancer Moonshot initiative. Now, what is this new agency modeled under? Modeled after the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, the new agency is known as the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health. In the Argo of Washington, where every agency has an acronym, the Defense Research Agency is called DARPA, and the health agency is ARPA-H. Some of her government experience. Dr. W. is a vice president for business development at Ginkgo Bioworks and the head of innovation at Concentric by Ginkgo, the company's initiative to advance coronavirus testing and track the spread of the virus. She also worked at DARPA and its sister agency, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects Activity. She is a DARPA veteran, gonna handle the, gonna head the agency that is being modeled after DARPA. And still more, that agency, the agency, already has an acting deputy director, Adam H. Russell, also a DARPA alumnus who has been laying the technical infrastructure and other groundwork to get the new agency off the ground. <laughs> Basically, this is a, a medical DARPA. As we've noted, so many of the uh, technologies that were involved with uh, biotechnology also have biological warfare applications. They are dual use. And Dr. W. is not only a veteran of DARPA, uh, she's going to head the agency, now being headed by another alumnus of DARPA, but from the Wikipedia, Wikipedia entry on Dr. W. In 2009, she was a senior scientist at Mesoscale Discovery, and in 2012, she was a fellow at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. From 2009 to 2016, she worked as a senior lead technologist at Booz Allen Hamilton. From 2016 to 2020, she served as a program manager in the Biological Technologies Office of DARPA, 
where she specialized in synthetic biology. That's what Ian Sample was talking about, and biosecurity. So from 2016 to 2020, as the uh, SARS-CoV-2 was being birthed, she was working on the Biological Technologies Office of DARPA, and DARPA is deeply implicated in the development of SARS-CoV-2, as we have seen in so many programs. One of these days, and I, we may actually wind up having an accidental nuclear war, or maybe a not-so-accidental nuclear war. I don't think the powers that be want one necessarily, because nuclear war breaks the toys. But I guarantee you they are going to use biological warfare for what I think is going to be World War III. And that is really terrifying, particularly in a world where mutagens are becoming more and more numerous. One of these days, they're going to create a wee beastie and they're going to toss it out into the environment to wipe out who knows who. And the wrong mutagen is going to hit the wrong nucleotide in the wrong gene, in the wrong organism, at the wrong way, at the wrong pond, and it is going to spawn a devastating world-ending plague. One of the things that amazes me, too, is that the, the people doing these things, they're made of flesh and blood, and they have families, they have spouses, they have children, they're made out of flesh and blood, and their descendants are going to suffer from these same things. But uh, who knows? We'll see. Then we recap another interesting uh, item, and I've used this in many programs, including for the record of 1161. And uh, this comes from uh, Politico, and it is by Quint Forgev, F-O-R-G-E-Y, F-O-R-G-E, from Politico of May 5th of 2020, <laughs> three years ago today. Fed study ties 1918 flu pandemic to Nazi party gains. A few excerpts here. A new academic paper produced by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York concludes that deaths caused by the 1918 influenza pandemic, quote, profoundly shaped German society, unquote, in subsequent years and contributed to the strengthening of the Nazi party. The paper, published this month and authored by New York Fed economist Christian Blickle, that's K-L-I-S-T-I-A-N, Blickle, capital B-L-I-C-K-L-E, examined municipal spending levels and voter extremism in Germany from the time of the initial influenza outbreak until 1933. I would note that the uh, genome for the 1918 influenza virus was discovered by from Roll Fanfare, Fort Detrick scientists in 1997, and had been recreated in its entirety by 2005, as we have seen. And uh, one more excerpt of this particular uh, paper. The paper's findings are likely due to, quote, changes in societal preferences, unquote, following the 1918 outbreak. Blickle argues, suggesting the influence of pandemics, disproportionate toll on young people may have, quote, spurred resentment of foreigners among the survivors, unquote, and driven voters to parties, quote, whose platform matched such sentiments. The conclusions come amid fears that the current coronavirus pandemic 
will shake up international politics and spur extremism around the world as officials and public health experts look to previous outbreaks for guidance on how to navigate the months and years to come. And I would also note that the effects of uh, SARS-CoV-2 are also very much in keeping with the eugenics agenda of the World Economic Forum of Klaus Schwab. Uh, They have opined that the world's population needs to be reduced. Well, that certainly is happening. And I would also note that uh, going into, uh, I think it was 2022, one in every 100 Americans over the age of 65 had died of the pandemic. Of course, that will save on Social Security and Medicare, and even apparently relatively mild SARS-CoV-2 infection does produce lasting damage to the immune system and also to things that will shorten the human lifespan. And reducing the world's population is one of the things that Klaus Schwab basically sought to do. And again, I know I'm skipping around here, but I'm trying to uh, basically uh, indicate why I think we are doomed. And uh, I uh, think people really need to think about what they may or may not do. And uh, I hopefully will be able to provide a little bit of inspiration to this profoundly depressing thing. Uh, the wisdom of Chief Sitting Bull of the Bacopa, I realize I'm skipping all around here, but this is a, a difficult thing to undertake. Again, it may not work. But the wisdom of Chief Sitting Bull of the Lakota, expressed in 1877, at the Powder River Council, I think applies today, and it applies to the American industrialists who invested the capital from the American boom of the 1920s abroad, helped to bring fascism to uh, fruition, really created fascism, and then when uh, the Galen Morgan and the paperclip people at all were brought back to the U.S., basically it was those elites collecting on their investment. This is what Sitting Bull had to say at the Powder River Council of 1877. Behold, my friends, the spring is come. The earth has gladly received the embraces of the sun, and we shall soon see the results of their love. Every seed is awakened and all animal life. It is through this mysterious power that we too have our being, and we therefore yield to our neighbors, even to our animal neighbors, the same right as ourselves to inhabit this vast land. Yet, hear me, friends, we have now to deal with another people, small and feeble when our forefathers first met with them, but now great and overbearing. Strangely enough, they have a mind to till the soil and the love of possessions is a disease in them. These people have made many rules that the rich may break, but the poor may not. Again, note these last few sentences. Yet, hear me, friends, we have now to deal with another people, small and feeble when our forefathers first met with them, but now great and overbearing. Strangely enough, 
they have a mind to till the soil, and the love of possessions is a disease in them. These people have made many rules that the rich may break, but the poor may not. They have a religion in which the poor worship, but the rich will not. They even take tithes of the poor and weak to support the rich and those who rule. They claim this mother of ours the earth for their own use, and fence their neighbors away from her, and deface her with their buildings and their refuse. They compel her to produce out of season, and when sterile, she is made to take medicine in order to produce again. All this is sacrilege. This nation is like a spring freshet. It overruns its banks and destroys all who are in its path. Well, I'm afraid that kind of says it, and uh, I think Sitting Bull in 1877 saw the same things that are engulfing us uh, today, and I am very, very pessimistic. I'm going to try in the next program to give you perhaps some very failing insights into uh, the larger picture and why you should uh, basically behave in a moral fashion and uh, basically recognize that there is something beyond just uh, the here and now, and uh, you have to transcend the love of possessions, which is indeed a disease in people. I'm going to read an article into the record, uh, which I've read before, uh, from the New York Times of April 30th of 2001. Listen closely. From Tiny Hum came Big Bang by James Glantz. And uh, it uh, talks about uh, the beginning of the universe. And uh, the leading theory of how the universe could have exploded out of the primordial nothingness known as the theory of inflation predicts that the quantum fluctuations should have rattled the universe in such a way that it resonated like a vast organ pipe with one main tone or wavelength and a series of overtones or harmonics. And they have discovered these. Two detectors in Antarctica have discovered minute patterns in a glow from primordial gases, possible traces of the cosmic match that ignited the Big Bang and led to the creation of the universe 14 billion years ago. Astronomers, astronomers announced today. Well, what made that? Don't know, but uh, perhaps... We will find out, and I will speak about that in our next program. However, this concludes, for the record, program number 1297, The End and the Beginning, Part 4. This is being recorded on May 5th of the year 2023. I'm Dave Emery. Have fun. <laughs>